whether we're talking about business, wellness, travel, or relationships. I've always thought age is just a number. Welcome to Ageless with me, Cynthia Raleigh, and my daughter, Kit Keenan. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Ageless. So today we have a really interesting episode for you. We have Dr. Roxana Namavar on the podcast today. She is a psychiatrist treating patients in New York City, and she completed her residency at the University of Virginia. She sees patients for a variety of reasons, including depression, anxiety, ADHD, attention problems, mood disorders, behavioral and cognitive therapy. She does relationship and marriage counseling, and she works on addiction and substance abuse as well. And she creates individual treatment plans for each of her patients. She works with medication management, psychotherapy, vitamin infusions, ketamine therapy, which we talk about, bioenergetics, hypnosis, acupuncture, food allergy testing, and vitamin and nutraceutical supplementation, which we talk about all of this. This episode is super, super rich in all vitamins. We talk about ketamine. We talk about therapy. And I think the takeaway from this episode is really the mind-body connection and how growing up, I went to see my doctor once a year and it was kind of just like for a checkup and I work on my mental health completely separate from that. And with Dr. Namavar's treatments, it's really all about connecting those things and having a hub for overall wellness So I hope you guys love this episode um, and I can't wait to hear your thoughts. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes, this is so exciting. So I guess just to jump right in, I want to hear from your point of view, like what the difference is with from your practice to what most of our listeners have probably experienced go, growing up in like a conventional medicine setting. So I, I think the, the biggest difference when I think of conventional medicine and when you, when you talk to me about, you know, what most of our listeners have experienced, I'm going to talk about what, you know, sort of what I experienced before I uh, entered the medical field. So I guess I was a child at that point, um, you know, only 10 years ago or so. But anyway, um, I think I, I would, you know, go to the doctor for a checkup once a year and we do some basic lab work and they would say, you're fine or, you know, let's work on X, Y and Z. And and then we would check up in, in a year unless one got sick, had a problem, broken leg, strep throat, something like that. And that was sort of the the end of my relationship with my physician and, and, you know, you would jump from one physician to another, depending on whether, you know, you were moving or, you know, if you needed a specialist for a broken limb or something that that would be a different story. My practice is, is different uh, in a lot of ways. I'm a psychiatrist. I did my residency in psychiatry at the university of Virginia, and then I did a fellowship in functional medicine and anti-aging. And I wanted to practice on my own. I wanted to practice 
in a way that I felt was appropriate. And the only way to really do that was to do it under my own personal practice, not under an academic center or a research center, et cetera. So one of the biggest differences is the time that I spend with my patients. So when I first see a patient, um, uh, it's about 90 minutes and we go through your entire history. And, and I don't mean like what medications do you take only? I mean, we're talking about, you know, energy levels throughout the day. What is your diet like? What are you feeling on a, on a day-to-day basis? What are, what are our goals here in order not to fix a problem, but to optimize quality of life? And when we're talking about quality of life, I don't believe that there's a real separation between mental health and cellular function and organ function, which is what we would consider functional medicine. So if, if for example, we have a vitamin deficiency, a lot of doctors don't check and we're not trained to check vitamin levels. Vitamins are necessary cofactors for your body to function. Traditional medicine tends to assume you've got that. You've got, you know, you have your kidney, it's working fine. How do we know that unless, we're, unless we really check the, check the nitty gritty and all of the components that are necessary for our bodies to function? So uh, when I first meet with a patient, I spend a lot of time with them. I go through as much information as I can possibly do um, and, you know, without wearing them out, then we will focus on uh, their specific goals. So particularly when I first started practicing, I focused a little bit more on mental health and I would find that, you know, at least in Manhattan, we all have sort of the same complaints, right? We're, we're tired, we're busy, we want to be uh, more productive, have our metabolism work better, Let's really minimize any wrinkling or any signs of aging and feel good on a day-to-day basis. So when, when in medicine, when we talk about feeling good, you end up in a psychiatrist's office. And there are lots of reasons other than anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, those type of things that can create issues where patients would complain of not feeling well. Viruses can create that. Uh, Lyme disease is, is quite prevalent if you go to the Hamptons, Connecticut, or Central Park even. There are so many reasons that uh, one could not feel well and and function optimally that uh, we, I try to look at everything in order to create a, a plan that will uh, maximize the patient's health and give them the best life possible. Because I feel like the better we each are as individuals, the more productive we will be. And as that moves forward, and as we all become more productive, society will progress. Especially for people my age and for myself, even like, I know that I'm functioning. Okay. I know I'm functioning fine, but I feel like there is this focus on optimal function. And I'm wondering like for your patients, What do you see most in terms, when you test their vitamin levels, what vitamins do you see are like overall most people are kind of lacking in that most of us should supplement with? I don't think I I have ever seen a vitamin D level where I want it to be without a patient being on supplements. I think that antioxidant levels tend to be quite low supplementing and treating antioxidant levels becomes a little bit more complicated. Uh, I tend to use a lot of infusions in my practice for a number of reasons. Number one, you know, New Yorkers are the most impatient people in the world, right? And want to feel better quick, quicker. So um, the amount of, of vitamins and the dosages that one can get in an infusion, if it's done properly, 
are much higher than than what you could get orally. So one of the main antioxidants in our system is glutathione. So glutathione, you could take it orally. The studies show that, you know, maybe it would take at least a good six months of taking liposomal glutathione to raise the levels at all when it, compared to, you know, one infusion that takes 20 minutes in the office. So that's a, that's a significant difference. Um, so I, I will see lots of low vitamin D levels. Antioxidant levels tend to be low. I do test as much as we possibly can that this test needs to be refined a little bit. I do test neurotransmitter levels. Uh, serotonin levels tend to be on, on the lower side. I tend to see um, most of my patients have some sort of gut health issue, which is uh, a whole a whole piece of medicine in and of itself that, that needs to be addressed, which is another reason why I tend to jump to infusions to help patients feel better more quickly because we have to also treat the gut. I think the number one vitamin that I see that is low to answer that question is is vitamin D followed by vitamin C levels mm. because a lot of patients will come in already supplementing vitamin B you know it's sort of out there in the in the uh, in pop culture as as elevating energy and mood so that tends to be an easy one for for patients just to say okay I'll take vitamin D B and it probably won't do any have any negative effect and um, that's it. Now, when, during a pandemic, for example, patients come and taking vitamin C a little bit more, but I do tend to see low vitamin C levels and vitamin D levels are probably the most prevalent vitamin deficiencies. And to your point about like neurotransmitter tests and gut health, I think we can kind of, I want to hear your perspective on how those two are connected in terms of like your mental health and the neurotransmitters that are firing in your brain that affect your mood and your gut health, because I think that connection is so often missed in conventional medicine. And that's why a functional approach is so important. Mm -hmm. I mean, just bottom line, right? When one gets nervous, you see, I have a lot of patients say, well, I get nervous, I end up in the bathroom with diarrhea or a constipation. So there's there's obviously a connection just baseline without having to do any research. But if you look at the research, there is more serotonin in our gut than there is in our brain. And the bacteria that populate our intestinal tract help to break down our food, help to absorb nutrients, and that also help to create the products that make our neurotransmitters and our neurochemicals, such as serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, and all of these neurochemicals help to modulate our brain function and balance our mood. That being said, we don't know everything about the brain, so I'm just going to make that as a caveat. That's sort of one of the last organs we are still discovering new things about every day. But I think when we discount gut health, we're really doing the patients a disservice because we're missing this huge organ that can make such a big difference with with mood. For example, if one were to go to um, a GI doctor and have symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome, one of the main treatments is putting a patient on something on a pill that modulates serotonin. So there is there is an, in conventional medicine there is a connection that the way that it is implemented, it, I think we could work on a lot unless you're seeing a functional medicine doctor that's already doing that. Wait, so are you saying that we want to talk about psychedelics? We want to <laughs> yes. talk about how ketamine and microdosing and 
unconventional means of combating things like depression, what's happening in that world right now. But we're saying, I think that by treating the brain with things like that, it's ultimately going to help our gut health. Our body is essentially a feedback mechanism, right? So when we change one thing, everything else responds. So you know, when you drink water, there's a biochemical response. When you take a psychedelic, there's a biochemical response. When you eat chocolate, there's a biochemical response. When you eat cheese, there's a biochemical response. So that will shift everything that's going on in your in your system and in your body. So it's a little bit easier to, to treat the gut first because anything you put in your mouth is going through um, going through your GI system. So you know we want to to treat the gut when we're treating the brain as well. Now the brain modulates everything else. So could that shift the way your gut works? Absolutely, 100%. There are more and more studies coming out showing that there are specific strains of uh, probiotics or bacteria that one could consider taking. Um, unfortunately, you can't buy them specifically at this point where like one probiotic, one bacteria, one form of bacillus helps with metabolism and help could help with weight loss. And you can, one could see that there are similarities in microbiome of people who struggle with obesity. I imagine that as we continue to do more research in the functional medicine space, we will also find that that's the case for anxiety. That's the case for depression. That could be the case for ADHD and uh, any other neurodegenerative illness. So there's a, there's a big connection there. Um, and there's there's lots of space for research and uh, more work to be done. But I think we have to start with testing the microbiome in our patients um, rather than just sort of starting to throw random random bacteria at you. I want to hear your thoughts on probiotics and the probiotics that we might buy at like Whole Foods or I don't know our local health food store and your recommendations in that space? Well, I think medicine has to be personalized. So I don't think that there's one probiotic that works for everybody. I think it really depends on the patient. So um, I might recommend one probiotic for a patient who struggles with bloating 30 minutes after they eat versus a patient who has celiac disease versus a patient who has irritable bowel versus a patient who becomes constipated when they travel. There's, there's versus, versus somebody who has um, an autoimmune disorder or chronic anxiety. So the issue that's tricky, and I think that is very overwhelming for patients, is that there are you are bombarded with products that are supposed to support your wellness everywhere. They're on Instagram. They are, you know, at CVS. They are at Whole Foods. And they're, they're, you know, they're at the liquor store. They're, you know, they're everywhere. And so, uh, and and these products are not necessarily regulated in the same way that one would regulate, like the FDA would regulate drugs. So they're sort of more, treated more like a food product. So you're not exactly sure what you're getting. So in general. I'm very particular about uh, vitamins. I wouldn't say, and vitamins and pro, including probiotics. I wouldn't generally say this is the best probiotic for everybody. I think ideally what I would love is to be able to test every single patient and come up with a personalized probiotic to help support their 
gut that it, it takes a lot of work. Um, and I think that that is, is something that will come down the road um, in the field of medicine. In general, um, there are, you know, certain uh, brands that have a lot of clinical studies behind their products that are sold through physicians' offices. And, and you really can't get them like on Amazon or at Whole Foods or um, I don't know, the liquor store or wherever one would find these things. You know, orthomolecular, I tend to like metagenics. I tend to like uh, Thorne has some good products. But again, I think medicine should be personalized. And I wouldn't go ahead and go out there and start taking random supplements without having a physician's guidance and without some lab work because vitamins and minerals and uh, probiotics and, and we need you can overdose on them. You could take the wrong form. There are three different forms of B12, for example, and they each do different. It's not that they each do different things, but they could each they could impact you differently depending on who you are as the patient, your genomics, and the way that your body is functioning. So if, for example, like during this last surge, a lot of, I saw a lot of articles recommended to take zinc and to take vitamin C to help boost the, the immune system. But like, personally, I, I will make a big admission here to you. I don't take vitamins at all because of your very, like what you were just saying before, because I haven't done lab work and because I feel like pretty great. And I just don't trust like a lot of the vitamins that I would find at a grocery store. And I don't really see that big of a difference when I take them. I take a multivitamin, but that's it. So I'm wondering, like, for people in my situation who maybe feel fine and haven't done lab work, like, in terms of just taking over-the-counter or, like, CVS brand vitamins, is it just kind of like a no-go? I think that depends on the person. I mean, if, if you take something from CVS and it makes you feel better um, for CVS, for example, or some wherever you buy it and it makes you feel better, that's giving us information. I, I believe and I wish that a functional medicine physician was available to every person. I think that would, you know, kind of change the world. But I feel like I wouldn't go ahead and start randomly taking anything. I will give you an example and I have permission to share this, this story because it's about my mother. So she, she doesn't care, but um, uh, you know, my, my mother is very healthy, uh, um, but she takes, I mean, fistfuls of supplements. Right. And so when she started this relationship with supplements, um, maybe it was 30 years ago and about five years ago, she, she said to me, Oh, I don't know. She has this annoyingly gorgeous, thick blonde hair. And she said, oh, my hair's, I think my, I'm losing some of my hair. This is really weird. Like, I don't know. I don't kind of know what's going on. I said, can, can I finally, will you let me like, I mean, I know I'm your daughter, but can I do your lab work? And I'd read some, she's not a physician and she had read somewhere that, you know, DHEA is a good thing to take for energy and whatnot. And, and she's a woman. And so, you know, if we overdose on DHEA, it will cause hair loss because it can also shift all the other balance of your hormones, testosterone, all of the, and, you know, all of that entire pathway. So I think I'm sharing that story to say, like, ideally test now, and then decide a personalized plan for you. 
Blood work to test your basic vitamins is usually covered by insurance and it can be ordered by a general physician. Being read by a general physician is just depending on whether they're willing to, to do that or not, but it, it, it is not a difficult thing to do. So I, I would just, I would recommend getting tested and making sure that, you know, we're not overdosing um, on a vitamin. Over an overdose of B6, for example, can cause panic attacks and, and sort of numbness and tingling. So, you know, let's just make sure that that's not what's happening. If one comes in with feeling anxious or having any numbness and tingling, we don't have to jump to thinking that there's a neurological illness. That whole answer is to say, again, I think medicine should be personalized and I, I wouldn't go ahead and jump to start taking a whole bunch of supplements all the time. I think that there are supplements that we know support our immune cells and our immune system. We know that vitamin C is helpful in general. We know that um, zinc is helpful in general, but you might not be deficient in that. And so you, you might feel okay and not need that supplementation. You know, if you take too much vitamin C, uh, you're going to spend quite a bit of your time in the bathroom. So um, we also might not want to do that. So, you know, there isn't there isn't a one size fits all. I just think this is so interesting because you're really challenging all the conventions of modern medicine or going to the doctor. Like, I think people dread going to the doctor. I know I go once a year and have my physical and that's it. And I always feel like I'm wasting their time. Like, just do what you got to do and get the hell out of there. You know what I mean? And this is like an entirely new way to think about seeing your doctor. Probably a lot of people are like this. Like, I would never want to share any of my personal, emotional well-being. You know, do I have, you know, that I have anxiety about things that I maybe depressed about something, you know, these are all things that I think have been traditionally taboo when you go to the doctor. And it's just, this is is such an eye-opening way to think about seeing your doctor and and getting well in in mentally and physically together. I I think most patients, well, I'm going to say most people, what we really want is connection. We're looking for human contact, real contact, not, you know, hi, how are you? I'm fine, but real human connection. And so, you know, that's, that's one of the most healing things I think that, that we can give each other. doesn't necessarily even have to be in a doctor patient relationship, but I think, you know, without that in your doctor patient relationship, we're really missing something that is so, so important. And that, that allows space for the patient to say, actually, I'm noticed I'm feeling sad all the time, or I feel blunted, or I feel flat, or uh, life just seems boring. There's what, what, what can I do to shift that so that I, I can be better at work. I can be better for myself. I can be better for my kids. I can, you know, create a more productive and fulfilling life for myself. Well, I think it's funny too, that usually when you go to the doctor, you're just like, get it over with, hope they don't find anything. Like that's your ultimate goal is find nothing. And by seeing you, the goal is let's find this, let's find something and treat it, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it can also feel great to say, okay, well, I'm, you know, I'm feeling tired rather than just saying, 
okay, sleep more. Well, obviously if I could, first of all, if I could sleep more, I would. And also I'm still tired. So what's going on? It, it gives, it's empowering. When we have an answer, it's empowering. The more information we have, educated information we have, the more empowering it is, the, the more power you have in your own life to create what you want. Yeah. It's like, it's really your esthetician, your doctor, your therapist all in one and so much more. But I want to get into, I know you were a fellow at the American Academy of Anti-Aging. And I want to talk about, most of our listeners are around my age. I want to talk about your recommendations in terms of anti-aging when you're in your 20s and 30s and like starting that process early. So by the time you do start to see wrinkles, like it's later, you can maybe delay that process a little bit because I'm definitely looking to do that. Sure. So when I think of anti-aging, you know, there's aesthetic anti-aging and then there is a, you know, a cognitive anti, anti-aging. And then there is the way that we keep our body our, and our organs functioning. So there are, um, let's talk about it in three different ways. So as far as, as brain health and cognition, the most important thing is that, you know, we, we keep ourselves healthy. So there's very basic ways to keep yourselves, your, your body functioning in a healthy way, right? Do, going to, going to a functional medicine doctor or, or at least a general doctor, uh, getting your lab work, making sure that, that you're eating well, making sure that your gut health is um, intact is really important. Gut health has, uh, it's it not only connected to your brain, but also skin health. But if we're talking about anti-aging from an aesthetic perspective, I think a good skincare routine with products that work for you, there are, everybody has their own opinions on on different products. Sunscreen is the big Mm -hmm. one. I will say personally, I think that for myself, I'll just say for myself, Botox, Juvo, sort of any sort of injectable toxin can be preventative when it comes to longer term wrinkles. Obviously, you know, my language. <laughs> I, 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 that one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it, I think I, I personally love it. I, I have no qualms in saying I, I do my, I will do my own Botox. I, when it wears off, I want to fix it right away. So I, I love it. I would do my own Botox if I could. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I'm my, I, I absolutely love it. So um, I think that that's from from it just a cosmetic perspective, from something that's pretty easy and preventative. I, I think that you know dermal fillers can be helpful, but you know when I look at you, like I wouldn't I wouldn't want to fill your face with anything because I, I think that oh you know we remember over time you don't want to look puffy. I think you want to age gracefully, and so um, you don't need first of all you don't need it. Like, I I just think there's so much chatter, like about, about preventative Botox when you should start like all of that. And I see so many videos like on TikTok and stuff of people being like, I'm 23 and I've already started getting Botox. And I just think like, aside from kind of how taboo it is, I want to know if you do start earlier, I think a lot of people like the fear is that by the time you get to a certain age, it won't work anymore. And I want to hear your thoughts on that. So I suppose it is possible that one could 
develop anti uh, antibodies or a uh, sort of a tolerance to Botox. That being said, there are, there are other products that, that work similarly that you like Xeomin and Juvo that you can you cycle in so that you don't end up with that issue. So one of my best friends is a very fat, genetically a fast metabolizer. So, you know, when I do her Botox, you know, she needs Botox again in six weeks just because her body burns it up very quickly. That's, that's rare, but it can happen. Um, but I, I'm, I'm not that worried about patients starting young and then all of a sudden, you know, you're 45 and you can't use Botox anymore. There are enough uh, products that, that work like that, that, you know, you can cycle those so that you, you prevent that from happening. You prevent the tolerance from happening. So I wouldn't worry so much about that, but I, I do think that, that a toxin, um, that will prevent muscular, muscular movement, will stop those resting wrinkles from forming that over time you know especially up here in this area around your eyes around that, that sensitive area around your eyes and even sometimes around your mouth it can you can have really you know great benefit and and um it's it's uh, it's 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 pretty easy. It's kind of painless. I think when when you start to get into dermal fillers, we start to get into lasers. Things are a little bit more complicated, right? Because once once one uses a laser, you have more sensitivity to light and sun. So you you have to make sure that you're informed and um, know everything about the laser that you're getting, what you can and can't do, what happens afterwards. Uh, we don't want to, you know, utilize a laser and then, you know, you go to Hawaii and lie in the sun and then you can, you can um, actually gain more uh, discoloration. So we have to make sure that also if, if one is going to do a laser or some sort of treatment like that, there is an appropriate recovery period and you know how to treat your skin. One of the things that I love for uh, skincare and from an anti-aging perspective um, and which we do in my office is microneedling with exosomes. So do you, have you guys heard of that? I know what microneedling is, but I don't know what exosomes are. Okay. So obviously microneedling is these tiny, tiny, we numb you. So it doesn't hurt. So don't worry about that. But when you're, you, one is numbed and then there are these tiny, tiny needles that sort of create a very, very deep exfoliation. And traditionally what um, one would do is put PRP, which is protein rich plasma, which one would, um, you know, draw the patient's blood, spin out the red blood cells, and then put the, uh, the, the, the sort of the, the sebum or the, um, what it looks sort of like a yellowish liquid back on, on the skin to try to promote collagen production and youthful, um, sort of a youthful glow. Exosomes, I think, are, will be will start to become more and more well known. We think about you could think about exosomes in a very simple way as signaling molecules from stem cells. And so, um, what what I have found, what the research shows, is is you know if if you have this open skin, this deeply exfoliated skin, and then we put sort of stem cell molecules on there, you're going to have a much better result because we're sort of basically signaling your skin to grow like a baby skin. In my office, I try to really minimize what I offer to two things that I have tried myself and that I really like that I think are useful and really helpful because to be honest, you can get a laser anywhere, but I think that um, if we, I tend to try to do a lot of research 
about, you know, what's happening in Europe, what's happening in Asia, what, you know, Korea is huge for um, aesthetics as well. Like what, what are all of these other countries doing and, and what is the most effective form of treatment for whatever ailment I'm dealing with. But one of the things that I really love for anti-aging and just the quality and texture of skin is microneedling with exosomes. That is obviously different from using something like Botox that minimizes movements and resting wrinkles. Um, the microneedling with, with the exosomes is, is more for um, texture. What about other parts of your body? But, you know, as you age, this your skin gets dry or it gets sort of textured. I don't know. The texture changes. Well, you, you can put micro, micro needling and exosomes can go anywhere if you wanted to. Um, I, I think that skin quality changes often have to do with um, hormonal shifts. So when somebody, when a patient comes in and says, I'm concerned about, you know, this wrinkle and this, you know, all of a sudden I've turned gray or, you know, my skin became crepey, we treat it aesthetically, but I want to know what else is going on, right? What's, what's happening with your stress hormone levels? What's happening with your um, sex hormone levels? Is there an issue with estrogen, progesterone? what is happening here that is is starting to to create the, these changes because if we just give you botox you you'll like it but there's a whole lot going on underneath that will change the texturing of, of skin if you're not detoxifying properly your skin your skin quality is is just it's not, you're going to notice it, it, glutathione infusion for example is one of is a great thing to do um, and I do it for a lot of patients um, like pre performance for example and it create it can create this sort of a, a glowy nature to the skin and help with um, things called melasma like a, uh, issues called like melasma which is an autoimmune disorder that causes almost brown freckling and spots uh, mostly on the face and worsens with sun sun exposure that's what Sarah Hoover yeah. was talking about mm-hmm. oh my god this is I, it's so much mm-hmm. <laughs> no but it really is it's, it's a lot but it but it's sh- it's so amazing that it's all in one office. The whole idea that I know if I look good, I feel better. And, mm-hmm. you know, psychologically, I'm like almost like a different person, you know, but if I'm focused on, you know, these brown spots or things that are happening with my skin or, you know, maybe I'm not feeling that great. It's just, it changes everything. I think a hundred percent. I mean, the way that we feel changes the way that we look and the way that we present ourselves and the way that we present ourselves and the way that we look changes, can change the way that we feel. And that's just, that's not only psychological, that's biochemical. So when it comes to anti-aging for, you know, somebody of your age, we want to make sure you're optimally functioning. We want to make sure your cells are working so you can detoxify, so you don't develop gray hair or more wrinkles or the more stress we have, the more risk you have of of autoimmune disorders developing, right? Like a melasma, we want to minimize all of that. So let's keep you functioning as, as, as much as we possibly can to optimal health. And that does include 
I'm going to call it mental health, but what I really mean is emotional health as well. So the better we cope, the better uh, relationship we have with ourselves, the better um, relationships we have in in the world, the less stress we tend to carry and that that significantly also plays into what what you know we would consider as anti-aging so maybe this is a good time to talk about a little bit more about the psychedelics and what the new discoveries are in that world because i i've been reading so much about it you know how ketamine is act mm-hmm. i mean i haven't tried it but that it's actually approved by the FDA. Mushroom. There's a lot going on there. What's that? Yeah. There's a lot going on in that space. Yeah. And things like mushrooms and LSD obviously are not approved, but maybe. Soon. I think so. I do think that mushrooms, microdosing, I do see it helping a lot of people with depression, small amounts. And ketamine seems brand new. I, I think there's a new drug that may be released by a couple of pharmaceutical companies soon. And um, I know that there's places like, I think there's something called field trip where you can go and have a drip. And I just think it's, it's an interesting new development that has a lot of acceptance and, and, yeah, so I want to hear like your your history in the space first yeah. and and working with these drugs first. So I'll just say uh off the bat I'm biased. Uh I am biased a little bit. I be, because I do do uh, utilize ketamine um in my practice. Uh as I said I did my residency at the University of Virginia that does have the division of perceptual studies that pushes the boundary and had traditionally pushed the boundary of different types of treatment, different types of, of experiences that, that patients could have. So I have always been interested in the concept of consciousness and um, how one can e- expand that, work with that, how that impacts um, our emotional well-being and psychology. So I have always been interested in this space. Now, let's start with ketamine because that's the the one that people are starting to become more interested in and is FDA approved. Ketamine um, has been around actually for a long time as an anesthetic agent. And so it's on the World Health Organization in top 100 important drugs. There's a couple reasons for that. Um, It is sort of a dissociative agent, meaning it can make you feel outside of your body and what that does do is allow for pain relief. And so it is uh, traditionally can have been used by the military. So if, you know, God forbid a soldier was on a battlefield and harmed and needed a leg amputation or something, um, one could start a ketamine infusion without much monitoring and perform it, perform whatever procedure needed to be done right there. And that is because ketamine doesn't, doesn't decrease uh, respiratory drive. Um, it can cause hypertension or increased blood pressure, but it does not cause a decrease in respiratory drive. So it's not going to completely knock you out to the point where you would need intubation. And ideally, you would use it in an OR, but in the middle of a, a war or something, you don't have that access. So ketamine was originally used as an anesthetic agent. So that means that it's FDA approved. Now, doctors have the ability to prescribe any medication that they want that is FDA approved for whatever indication they feel is appropriate. So, 
you know, traditionally in psychiatry, when we would have patients with treatment-resistant depression go through a bunch of medications, there wouldn't be much of an improvement. It takes a lot of time. There's side effects. Patients would, would, would sort of cycle through these these different drugs and finally say, forget it, I'm going to do ECT or electroconvulsive therapy. And so what ECT is, it's not utilized that much anymore, um, is that the patient would be anesthetized. We would um, then induce the seizure through um, electrical activity. And I, you know, the hope is that it sort of resets the brain. Um, It does have pretty decent results. However, there were some patients that would not reach seizure threshold in a safe way. So you can, you can only run a certain amount of electricity through a patient's system safely. And what we found were was that some of those patients felt better anyway. And often in those cases, ketamine was one of the anesthetic agents utilized. So that created a curiosity. Mm. So the ketamine started to be studied for uh, its mood benefits, uh, specifically with uh, depression and suicidal ideation. So right now, ketamine um, is being utilized in multiple different forms. So in my practice, I tend to use it as in an infusion, and we have specific protocols to help most of the time it's for depression. And you can have such quick results to the point where patients can say, oh my God, it was like a, a light switch changed. You know, light switch flipped on and all of a sudden, you know, this depression was lifted. Now, that doesn't happen for everybody, but it does happen a lot if you pick the appropriate patient for the treatment. I think the most, clinically, I've seen the most impactful results with ketamine infusions. Now, ketamine can also be made in a pill form which is actually it's what sort of what we would call a trose, which you put in your cheek or under your tongue and allow it to dissolve. It can be given as a as a shot, which we call intramuscular shot, and um, it can also be given in a nasal spray. Now, I it, now with with these forms, I'm I'm biased. I think that the infusions work the best. Uh, I think that it has the the um, it's the safest in my opinion because it can be turned off if the patient has a negative experience, which it clinically is pretty uh, rare. If there is an issue with uh, blood pressure or pulse oximetry, they can be stopped immediately. The patient becomes anxious. You can easily uh, correct that with another uh, medication through their IV. So it's in that sense, I think it's a controlled environment. And one can do that, you know, where, where we create an environment where the patient can listen to their music, they have their own experience, or you can also do um, a ketamine guided therapy. That I think is the the most effective. That's my opinion. I think that's the most effective. Now, traditionally, I will say psychiatrists tend to not want to get to the point where they're they're uh, sticking a patient with an IV. So there are companies trying to come out with other forms of uh, other uh, forms of of ketamine. So there is a nasal spray, Sparivo, um, that has come out that you know the patient will pick it up from the pharmacy. You have to bring it into your doctor's office. You utilize the nasal spray under supervision and then go home. I, I, I'm not going to speak against the medication. I don't, but in my experience, it is expensive and I have not used that specific drug because I think that the infusions are more effective 
and I do think it's it's kind of expensive. Ketamine has also been compounded in a nasal spray for quite a long time, and that is uh, significantly less expensive. So I'll I will say that um, the now when we're talking about um, other companies that are will um, advertise. Uh, I think the way they they put it, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, I think is is how th- these things are advertised. That tends to be in a melt away form. I again have utilized that for patients, but that tends to be more effective, in my opinion, for pain control rather than um, treatment resistant depression. Again, with a nasal spray with a melt away um, pill. If there is a negative response, if there is high blood pressure, if there's any sort of a side effect, there's not much, you know, we can, we can try to treat it, but uh, we have to kind of wait it out. There are other options for what we would call an IM injection, which is intramuscular. And again, if there's a negative side effect, there's not much that we can do there. Uh, patients will tell me who have had intramuscular ketamine injections will, um, sort of describe uh, feeling a little bit heavier. It's it's less of a lifting spiritual experience, which is what most patients will describe with the infusion. It's a little, the intramuscular tends to feel a little bit heavier. The limitation on how long is this, this experience going to take is different for each patient, depending on the way they metabolize. How long the effects last? After the treatment? Yeah. That's what you're saying that that. Uh, so when if I were to give you an intramuscular injection of ketamine, I don't. For you, it could last an hour. For another patient, it could last two hours. So we're not sure. As with an IV, depending on what we're treating, we 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 can make it last however long we need to, or turn it off. No, I mean um, the positive effects from the treatment. I mm-hmm. hear it can last up to a, a two or three weeks, maybe. Well, I, if we do an infusion series protocoled, you know, properly based on the research that has been done, I have had patients who have positive results for six months. I do also have patients who will come once a month for, you know, what we would call a booster infusion. And um, that's the only thing that, that they that they take. And, and part of the reason is that there isn't another medication that works like ketamine. So, you know, if we're talking about um, groups of medications, like what we would call an SSRI, um, you know, Prozac, Zoloft, Lexapro, Selexa, those things, they're not the same, but they work similarly. Uh, there isn't something that I can give you that works like ketamine other than ketamine. So once somebody, a patient has a positive response, you know, we know, okay, this, this works for your brain. So let's figure out the best, most effective and uh, mechanism of giving it to you that works for your lifestyle, obviously. What do you think about ayahuasca? So I don't have personal experience with ayahuasca. Um, I, you know, I know the research, I know that there's a lot, I do some um, advisory work for family office investments that um, look at a lot of healthcare investments and this, this space, I think it's going to be um, kind of, this space is about to blow up. Ayahuasca is particularly interesting because it sort of mixes together 
quite a few different molecules. I think what will happen in the medical world is that we will take, and what is, well, not, I think what will happen, what is happening is that researchers are taking um, ayahuasca and other uh, compounds like ayahuasca, like ibogaine, trying to separate out the molecules to so that one could really get rid of the side effects because not every patient wants to you know vomit during this experience it's not just one of those <laughs> things that happen with ayahuasca um so that we can we can really identify and pick the specific molecule that is needed for that specific patient so one of the things the molecules that is prevalent in ayahuasca is dmt and dmt we you know is sort of deemed the spirit molecule right it's it's we know that it's released during near death close to death or near death experiences if it's, it's it, which is obviously quite difficult to measure because we don't always know um you know, the time of, uh, of death, but it, we, it is released uh, close to death, perhaps in a body's effort to really um, oxygenate and keep the body alive, but does have um, positive, we think positive mood benefits. So that's one of the, the molecules that is the psychedelics that is being studied right now. Um, there are some serotonin benefits to ayahuasca, uh, sort of similar to MDMA or what we would call as ecstasy. That is, you know, again, being we used to be able to get ecstasy from the pharmacy and prescribe it, you know, many, many years ago, actually. Now, at this point, um, that's kind of being restudied again. Um, and then I think the, the next psychedelic that has um, spiked a lot of interest is psilocybin. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the next the next thing that will be approved, um, and it is being looked at for particularly for PTSD um, and veterans. Once the military sort of gets behind a treatment, it sort of tends to move quickly. That's so exciting! I hope that happens. And and do you think ecstasy will make it into some sort of approvals sometime in the near future? I think when it comes to regulatory things, it takes a little bit of time. Like what I would hope is near future, I'm going to say no. But yeah, in the drug world and in the in the in the world of pharmaceuticals, yes, in the near future, I think probably. I think not necessarily drinking. I'm not, I don't think I will be able to prescribe you psilocybin in a tea. I think it's going to be, it will probably be come in a form of either a pill or an infusion, um, which... I think could be really helpful because again, I don't know how many patients are going to want to commit to an eight hour experience where, you know, they, they may or may not be vomiting. And um, you also have, have the cost of then, you know, sitting with somebody that you trust for that amount of time. I mean, I'm not sure how many patients want to sit with, although I'm fabulous. I don't think there's that many patients that want to sit with me for eight hours and vomit. Um, but if we, if we can extract that molecule and infuse it, for example, uh, in a safe way that gets that sort of gets rid of what we would consider first pass metabolism and the side effects. I think you know you're gonna you're you're going to have a lot of positive benefit there. I hope. Now I know you mentioned it, and I I feel like we've run out of time, and we're going to need to do another podcast because mm-hmm. I know you also do hypnotism. And past life regression, dealing with trauma, et cetera. Maybe just a quick little explanation of some of that. Sure. So so hypnosis, uh, let's just define hypnosis as, as a 
state of being of suggest that allows more suggestibility and calm. So um, hypnosis can be utilized for a lot of different ailments. I have done it for anxiety. We've done it for addiction. You can do it for lots of different things. Pa- patients will, because I studied at the division with the division of perceptual studies, um, you know, I will have patients come to me curious about the concept of past lives, curious about, you know, that is in one reincarnation is in one's belief system. You know, what happened in my past lives? How does that impact me now? Is there, you know, a certain phobia that's associated? And, you know, one could use hypnosis to help, you know, connect to any of that information. Now, can, can we use hypnosis scientifically to prove that past lives exist? that's not going to be accepted in the scientific or medical world. That being said, um, Jim Tucker is uh, one of the lead psychiatrists that does research on past lives and past life um, memories. And all of the research that he does and that we did there at the Division of Perceptual Studies with him had had nothing to do with hypnosis. So these were what we would just consider sort of random um, memories that children would have that uh, then we would go through and uh, what would be considered verify. So whatever facts they would go through and and triple or double check that that was the case and do multiple interviews and and whatnot. But hypnosis was not used there. So uh, one can utilize hypnosis hypnosis for a lot of different uh things you um, think in in relationship to um addiction do you think it can be really helpful in that way i think it can be i think addiction is is a little bit tricky uh because you, you know you need a very motivated uh patient but i think hypnosis can even just the experience of hypnosis can be quite helpful for addiction. I mean, you know, the mind-body connection is really fascinating. Um, I I mean, hypnosis used to be and can still be sometimes still utilized, you know, it's during birth and and instead of anesthesia uh, for some people. Um, And, you know, one of the things that I thought when I was studying hypnosis, one of the things I thought was the most interesting is that when hypnosis is utilized for anesthesia, that there's a significantly decreased amount of blood loss during surgery. I always thought was fascinating when it comes to the mind body connection. So, you know, if it, if it can drop your, your, the amount of blood loss and that there's something, you know, our mind is more powerful than we, we are giving it credit for. That's so crazy. I can't even believe that. And I guess to that point, like this entire episode and all of your work is, is really surrounded, like is really focused on the mind body connection that's something that like most of us are probably, we're probably not raised to think about that much, especially if we're used to going once a year to a conventional doctor. And but I think now considering, you know, the state of the world, I, you know, with the pandemic, obviously it really is something that I think needs to be addressed more, the mind body connection. I, it's it's such a huge a huge piece I, and there's so much space to to work on it um but it's necessary and and patients aren't asking for it finally well, we're well, so happy you could be with us today yeah one question we ask all of our guests on ageless is what do you want to be when you grow up so just as a little wrap up we would love to hear your thoughts on that uh what do i want to be when i grow up uh, more childlike I think. Oh, I love that. I love that too. That's amazing. 
I think the, the yeah, I think the younger we can be, the the better. So we don't want to lose that as we grow up, grow um, up, whatever that means. I'm with you on that too. Yeah. I love that. All right. Thank, thank you so you much. So thank much. Thank you so much. Thank wow, you so I much. Like okay, so I know. I know. You have so many. You have so many facets. It's just you know we could do five podcasts on each and every one. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm here whenever. (laughs) Yeah. We'll have to do more. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so, so much. No problem. It was great to see you guys. All right. So I'm so happy that you guys got to listen to our stories today. As always, you can follow us on social media and keep up with our work and our crazy adventures. Then you can follow us on Instagram at Cynthia Rowley and at Kit Keenan. Thanks for listening.